judges are held to a higher standard of conduct than virtually anybody else. Hmm. But they have power virtually unlike anybody else. They can determine who gets custody of a child. They can determine who gets control of vast amounts of, of money in commercial disputes or in matrimonial litigation. They can determine who goes to jail and for how long. In some states, they can determine who lives and who, and who doesn't by imposing sentences uh, of death. It is enormous power. And as a society, we have evolved, I think, in a way, far more sophisticated than other societies, even Western Europe, in having developed a system of holding judges accountable for ethical misconduct. Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. Now let's get started. Hello and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Robert Tembekjian, who's the administrator and counsel at the New York State Commission on Judicial Conduct, which is the independent state agency responsible for reviewing complaints of ethical misconduct against the more than 3,500 judges and justices in the New York Unified Court System. As New York State Chief Judicial Ethics Enforcement Officer, Bob runs the day-to-day operations for the commission and leads a team of more than 40 based in New York City, Albany, and Rochester. He's an important leader in the field, both in his work and his writing. He served on the advisory committee for the ABA's commission to evaluate the model code of judicial conduct from 2003 to 2007, and is the author of many pieces about the importance and future of judicial conduct enforcement, both in scholarly journals and the popular press. Bob was actually recommended to me by another state judicial conduct director who described him this way. Bob is the perfect combo of practical knowledge and detailed policy best practices about the operation and construction of judicial conduct committees. He's a leader and mentor to many of those in the judicial ethics space, not to mention our unofficial historian, but he's never lost touch with the actual lawyering that occurs in this important but niche lawyering field of judicial ethics. Bob's a graduate of Fordham University School of Law, go Rams, Harvard Kennedy School of Government, go Crimson, and Syracuse University, go Orange. Welcome to the podcast. Very nice to be here. Thank you. So I was hoping we could start just by talking a little bit about your path and your decision to enter this work. You've been doing it for almost 40 years. So what got you interested in doing judicial ethics? Was this always the plan? And what sort of has kept you so excited that you've been doing it for as long as you have? Well, it wasn't necessarily a plan. In fact, I literally got into this work by accident. My parents, I grew up in Brooklyn and uh, Manhattan. My parents ran a mom and pop a dry cleaning store on Lexington Avenue. We lived uh, in the building that the dry cleaning store was located in. And right after I had been admitted to, to Fordham Law School, I had stopped in on my parents' uh, store. And one of their customers, who was also a family friend, someone for whom my sister had, had babysat their kids, happened to be stopping in. And he knew that I was going to law school. And he was working for the then newly created Commission on Judicial Conduct. And he said that they were, that the administrator, who turned out in the long run to be my predecessor, was looking for for an an evening law student to be an administrative assistant. And I said, wow, that sounds like me. I'm going to Fordham Law. I'm I'm in the night division. Mm -hmm. I had been doing some magazine freelance work, and I was very much interested in the position. I submitted my resume. I got called for an interview. And about four months later, I was hired for the job. So I was working 
at the commission while I was going to law school at night, never intending that I would stay as long as it turns out that I did. But in 40 plus years, I've now done just about every job there is to do here from typing up briefs written by other people to answering the phones to investigating cases to drafting research and opinions for the commission to ultimately uh, investigating and prosecuting cases and, and then becoming deputy to my first boss and then remaining and succeeding him when he retired back in 2003. What generally motivated me to the field, because before the freelance work for magazines, I had been involved in the criminal justice field uh, Mm -hmm. after college, is something far deeper and more personal. My ethnic background, as you can tell from my last name, is Armenian, and I'm the grandson of illegal immigrants to the United States. Mm -hmm. My grandparents had fled persecution in Turkey. The Armenian genocide at the hands of the Ottoman Turkish government beginning in 1915 uh, claimed a significant number of my ancestors. And ultimately, one and a half million Armenians were deported or killed out of the Ottoman Turkish uh, empire from 1915 to 1923. My grandparents on forged papers got to Canada mm-hmm. and ultimately crossed the Detroit River um, from Windsor, Ontario to uh, Detroit, Michigan, and came to New York where they had relatives in 1926 and remained. Growing up, I was exposed to stories of the horrors of the genocide. And one of the significant impressions uh, that it made on me was that an organized society not only could organize and effectuate the mass slaughter and destruction of an ethnic population that had been occupying that land for thousands of years, but that there would ultimately be no consequences. To this day, the Turkish government does not acknowledge mm-hmm. that there was a genocide. And it was only last year that the United States Congress formally recognized right. the persecution of the Armenians as a genocide. And it was only in April of 2021 that a United States president, President Biden, actually used the term genocide in a proclamation to describe what had happened to the Armenian population. It has always distressed me that people in great authority could perpetuate such wrongdoing and not be held accountable. So in a sort of cosmic sense, I guess I was driven to the law and to the work that I do now, which in a much smaller sense is holding very powerful people accountable mm-hmm. for their misbehavior is a way of fulfilling a lesson of my Armenian ancestry and legacy and something that gives me enormous satisfaction. There's no way to make up for the enormity of that historic loss, but it is a way for me in my day-to-day life to honor the memory of Mm -hmm. uh, my grandparents, my father who was born during the genocide and grew up to love the United States. He and his two brothers 
served in the armed services. They had successful small businesses. They raised families and contributed to the American way of life. It's a way from it's a way for me to continue that appreciation and dedication mm-hmm. to the freedom and liberty that we uh, enjoy in this country, and to underscore the value of holding people accountable for their behavior. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about what the Commission on Judicial Conduct does and what your role is on a day-to-day basis? Certainly. The Commission on Judicial Conduct is the state agency that's responsible for enforcing judicial ethics on the 3,300 or so judges in the New York State Unified Court System. We review complaints of alleged ethical misbehavior by judges, and we also have the authority to conduct investigations on our own motion. A a fair and honest and impartial judiciary is essential to uh, the rule of law and public confidence in the integrity of the judiciary is a cornerstone um, of that principle. And by serving as a forum for citizens, public officials and others to refer matters of potential judicial misconduct, by investigating and publicly disciplining those judges who have engaged in serious misconduct. I think the Judicial Conduct Commission underscores public confidence and faith uh, in the courts. Uh, The judiciary in this country has a long tradition of being, it's one of the founding principles of our constitution, Mm -hmm. but the judiciary also has to be accountable for its misbehavior if the citizenry is going to have any confidence that the courts are the place that we should be resolving our disputes uh, as opposed to the streets. And so it's a critical role that judicial ethics enforcement officers play. And incidentally, all 50 states have a judicial ethics enforcement entity such as the commission that I work for. Mm -hmm. So this is not by any means unique throughout the country, state judiciaries are held to very high ethical standards by independent entities that enforce uh, the code of judicial conduct on judges. Right. And it sounds like uh, you're not saying it directly, but that the federal government does not have a similar uh, entity. Is that accurate? That's true. The mechanism for disciplining federal judges for ethical misbehavior is quite diffuse. There is no central office or body that's responsible for receiving complaints, for investigating complaints. They don't have a professional ethics or grievance entity that can apply the same standards to federal judges all across the country. Each of the circuits has a process or procedure. It's not transparent. There are very few federal judges who are ever publicly held to account for Mm -hmm. their misbehavior. It has to be really egregious and spill out into the press to get any sort of uh, attention at all. And I think that ultimately undermines public faith in the courts. Judges, yes, must be independent, but they also must be accountable to some independent entity that can uh, apply the rules to them so that the public can have faith that the courts are administered by people of the highest possible ethical standards. Right. So let's talk brass tacks. How does a case come into your office and what's the first step for you and your team when there's an allegation made? Well, typically we receive uh, complaints, most often, as you might imagine, from people who have 
lost their case in court and are unwilling to accept that it was on the merits. And for the most part, those complaints, not just by the New York Commission, but by commissions all across the country, uh, are not investigated. If there is no real allegation of ethical impropriety by the judge, uh, then we'll analyze the complaint, we'll review the complaint, but we will explain to the complainant that the judge called it as he or she saw the issues and that it's really not ethically wrong for someone to lose a case <laughs> right, right, uh, or right. to be ruled against. Uh, but where the complaints on their face allege facts that if true would be a violation of the code of judicial conduct, uh, then the commission would investigate. So we receive in New York roughly 2,000 complaints a year. Wow. Most of them come from third parties. About 100 of them or so might be initiated on our own based on something we've read in the newspaper or that came to our attention in the course of investigating another matter. Sometimes when you're investigating misconduct by one judge, you come across new or different misconduct by that same judge or another judge. Sure. And so we can examine those on our own, even without a third party complainant. Roughly 2,000 complaints uh, a year, and somewhere in the nature or the neighborhood of about 250 of those will actually be investigated where we will review documents, take testimony, interview witnesses, require the judge to respond to the allegation, either in writing or in sworn testimony or Mm -hmm. both. Uh, And if after a thorough inquiry, which includes giving the judge the opportunity to refer witnesses to our attention, to respond and submit additional information beyond what we might have called in a deposition. The commission itself will review the investigative findings and determine whether or not to proceed further or to dismiss the complaint. I should point out, by the way, since I'm referring to the commission, Mm -hmm. that's an 11-member body in New York made up of appointees of the governor, the chief judge, and the state legislature, who essentially serve as unpaid volunteers. Four of them are judges, five are lawyers, two are non-lawyers, and they hold the ultimate authority to dispose of a matter. So the staff, which is full-time, will receive the complaints, make a recommendation, will actually conduct the nitty-gritty of the investigation if the commission has authorized it, And ultimately, we will report on those results to the commission, and they will decide whether to dismiss the complaint because it's unfounded, to dismiss the complaint because it cannot be substantiated, which Mm -hmm. is different than exoneration. But if you don't have the proof, you can't go forward. Right. Or whether to privately caution the judge because the misbehavior is not so egregious as to require a public reprimand or to authorize formal disciplinary charges, which would be the predicate to a judge being publicly admonished or censured or removed from office. If formal charges are authorized, then we serve an accusatory instrument on the judge, and that forms the basis for a disciplinary trial proceeding under the rules of evidence before uh, an impartial referee who then reports findings of fact and conclusions of law Mm -hmm. to the commission. And the commission will hear arguments by me and my staff, the judge and the judge's counsel, 
as to whether the referee's report should be accepted, and if so, what the discipline should be. They then retire to executive session without the aid or advice of either of the litigants, obviously, right, right. will render a decision. If they determine to publicly discipline, the judge has a right to have the New York State Court of Appeals, which is our highest state court, to review the matter. And the court has plenary authority to find facts, determine conclusions of law, accept the commission's recommendation, or to uh, impose its own result. And over the years, we've had approximately 100 disciplinary cases that have been reviewed by the Court of Appeals. The court has accepted the commission's Mm -hmm. uh, determination and sanction. In all but one case, they have affirmed that there was misconduct and they imposed discipline either more or less than the commission had recommended. And interestingly enough, in that one case- I was going to ask, yeah. That one case involved a judge who had Uh, failed to render decisions in cases for periods up to nine years. And the commission had determined that should result in a public discipline. The court, 20 some odd years ago, decided that although the judge had indeed delayed and those delays were inexcusable, they were more a matter for administrative resolution than for discipline. 20 years later, in a somewhat companion case, the court reversed itself Hmm. and found that the original decision and the results of that decision had not worked and that the commission could discipline judges as a matter of ethics for egregious delay in cases, because there is a provision of the code of judicial conduct, which requires all judges to dispose of the business of the court fairly and efficiently and promptly. Mm -hmm. Clearly a nine-year delay in rendering a decision on a matter that was fully submitted So there were no further submissions. And for whatever reason, the judge was incapable of rendering decisions in numerous cases. We now have a clear path to imposing public discipline in those matters where we had been inhibited by the state's highest court about 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. So I would say we have a uh, 99.44% success rate in the state's highest court. And that that shy of 100% has been remedied now. Right, right. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I clerked for two judges before I entered private practice, and both of them were big believers that sort of justice denied was not justice done. But nine years sounds like a very extreme version of that. There's absolutely no excuse for it. And, you know, there were real victims in this case. I mean, they were personal injury cases. There were individuals who were not getting justice. They were not being compensated in a timely way for serious bodily injuries. And there was just absolutely no excuse for it. But that was a relatively unusual situation. And I'm happy to say that as a result of those twin rulings by the state's highest court and our willingness to uh, view unexcused, unseemly delay as punishable, Mm -hmm. uh, that it's had a salutary effect on the New York judiciary and judges are striving to keep their calendars reasonably up to date. That's great. It sounds almost like you run a small or even not so small prosecutor's office, but just in a very relatively narrow set of rules that you're you're working on. Is that sort of an accurate comparison? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think it is. In fact, I often use the the district attorney analogy 
uh, or the U.S. attorney analogy to describe what it is we do, because our investigations are really similar to a grand jury presentation. Hmm. We do preliminary inquiries. The one big difference, of course, is that we can take testimony from the subject of our inquiry, whereas a prosecutor can't put the prospective defendant into the grand jury without right. raising an immunity issue. But ethical enforcement is different than criminal uh, prosecutions. For one thing, there's no liberty interest at stake, and there's no right to be uh, a judge. Hmm. So that, and there is a a body of conduct rules that are promulgated in all the states that judges are obliged to follow. I, I think it's fair to say that of all levels of public office holders throughout the country, from local alderman members or city councilors to the U.S. Senate to the presidency, there is probably no strata of, of public official that has a more stringent code of ethics than judges do. And I think it's because the role of a judge and the role of the courts in our society are unique. They are the places that we go to resolve our disputes, what keeps us from becoming an anarchistic country. Mm -hmm. And for those who are arbiting our disputes, public confidence in their integrity and in their behavior is extremely, extremely important. And the American Bar Association, I think, recognized that when they adopted the first national code of judicial ethics back in the 1920s. And all of the states have now adopted the code, which has been you know, revised and updated uh, sure. over the years, because they all recognize the significance of holding judges to uh, the highest levels of behavior on and off the bench. Mm -hmm. uh, a judge takes the cloak of office figuratively wherever he or she travels and throwing the weight of office around outside the courthouse for personal or private gain or to advance the interests uh, of others are things that we rightly frown upon mm -hmm. um, and that ethics commissions like mine uh, can hold the judges accountable for and discipline them for transgressions. So that if, for example, uh, a judge is caught speeding, it's an offense that most of us have been guilty of in our life at one time or another. Whether caught or not, of course. Whether caught or not. But if pulled over by a trooper, uh, a judge cannot introduce the fact of being a judge as a way of trying to evade the consequences of the stop. Mm -hmm. You can't use the procedure of judicial office for your own gain or for uh, the advancement of somebody else's private interests. So we have disciplined judges who were stopped by troopers, were ultimately acquitted of the original offense, whether it was driving while under the influence of alcohol or speeding, but because they introduced the fact of being a judge as a means of trying to evade the consequences of their behavior, they were publicly disciplined for it. That's an example of off the bench right. uh, misbehavior for which judges are held to a higher standard of conduct than virtually anybody else. But they have power virtually unlike anybody else. They can determine who gets custody of a child. They can determine who gets control of vast amounts of, of money in commercial disputes or in 
matrimonial litigation. They can determine who goes to jail and for how long. In some states, they can determine who lives and who and who doesn't mm-hmm. uh, by imposing sentences uh, of death. It is enormous power. And as a society, we have evolved, I think, in a way, far more sophisticated than other societies, even Western Europe, in having developed a system of holding judges accountable for ethical misconduct. And in fact, my colleagues and I are often uh, asked to give presentations to European commissions, to judicial organizations in Africa and Asia, in countries where judicial discipline and ethics enforcement is relatively nascent because we've been doing it for so long in this country. I've been doing this work for over 40 years. Mm -hmm. The first judicial conduct commission in the United States was created in California in 1960. And in relatively short order, it was emulated uh, in all 50 states, several territories, the District of Columbia for local judges. The only judicial strata in our society, as you pointed out, which is lagging behind is the federal judiciary. They don't have an inspector general. They don't have an office that centralizes the investigative process for the many complaints that they must receive. And I'm hoping that before too long, the feds do catch up to the states. Usually right. the feds are ahead of the states. In this case, they are woefully behind. Right. It sounds like the states are the true laboratories of democracy, as we like to say, but the feds still need to recognize that the experiment has worked and it's their turn to play their role. In this regard, you're absolutely right. And so I guess my my other question, as you were talking about judges personal lives and their professional lives coming together in the work you do, there's another layer, of course, for elected judges, right, who are both judges, but also politicians. And I know there's a fair number of elected judges in the state of New York. How does that balance of being an elected official, but also a judge play into your work? It can get very nuanced, but the code of judicial conduct actually has a a separate section that governs the political behavior of judges who attain office via election. And in New York, the vast majority of judges reach office by election. There are only a relatively handful of courts in New York State for whom the judges are appointed. So clearly, judges have to engage in political activity, and that can be in conflict with a fundamental premise of the codes of judicial conduct that are in play throughout the country, which is to separate judges from politics, Mm -hmm. because political influence can be quite harmful uh, to public confidence in the fairness and the integrity of court proceedings. So in New York, our code limits judges to political activity during a window period that begins nine months before election day and ends six months after. Now, you know, judges in New York are elected, depending on the office, to six-year terms or 10-year terms or 14-year terms. They cannot engage in political activity throughout that 14-year term mm-hmm. except for that limited window. And even then, their political activity is limited to conduct necessary and on behalf of their own campaigns for judicial office. So if I'm a judge running for re-election, I can't go running around and endorsing candidates for governor or Mm -hmm. raising money for congressional candidates, even though I'm in my allowable window period of political activity, I can only participate in political activity for myself. Moreover, the judge cannot personally solicit 
campaign funds. I mean, just imagine a, a judge who is presiding over cases and is running for re-election and happens to ask lawyers who appear before him or her to contribute to the re-election campaign. Those judges, those lawyers are going to feel enormous coercion. And over the years, we have publicly disciplined uh, a number of judges who have violated that provision. We publicly reprimanded a city court judge in an upstate New York City uh, who, during a break between cases, called the lawyers up to the bench and said, I'm running for re-election and I hope I can count on your support. Now, it wasn't a literal request for money, but it was certainly a request for support. And it is an absolutely inappropriate commingling of the independence and integrity of the judicial function with the crass political requirements of, of running for office. You since we've opted in New York and in several other states for an electoral system for judges, we have to make especially certain that those judges who reach office by election separate the politics from the judging. In New York, we've also created an advisory committee that issues advice, written advice to judges. They have a judicial campaign ethics program, which issues advisory opinions and general guidelines for judges for when they're engaging in the political process, the do's and don'ts. So we make a lot of efforts here to give judges guardrails Mm -hmm. uh, to remain within while they're running for office. And when they fall outside those guardrails, well, they're subject to to discipline for it. And we'll investigate. And if we find that the allegations are true and the judge has crossed the line, we'll discipline where necessary. And and your answer makes me think of something that that I often think about from my own time just as a law student and taking the multi-state professional responsibility exam. And for those who aren't familiar, every single law student who graduates from an ABA accredited law school is required to take professional responsibility, sometimes called legal ethics. Right. But one of the challenges, I think, especially as a young law student taking this exam for the first time is you sit down for the exam, you get the five multiple choice answers, and you just try to choose the one you think is the most ethical, whatever that means, right? I always thought in my time studying ethics, we talked about it as a binary. It is there is ethical or it isn't ethical, but you know, you, you sit down and you think, what is the best answer? And often that's not the right answer is something in between. And so can you just talk a little bit about that tension of legal ethics as not maybe the high watermark, but more as a floor that everybody has to agree and how that tension plays in your profession? Uh, sure. There, and as you're suggesting, there is often more nuance uh, than bright line mm-hmm. in determining standards and ethical behavior. A general rule of thumb that we used to that we used to like to say was if if it feels wrong, don't do it. (laughs) There are certain behavior for which you don't really need to have taken an ethics course to learn how to avoid. So an example of the bright line, if you're a judge and your brother is a lawyer in a case before you, or you should know, Mm -hmm. uh, even if you had just come out of the dark ages, that you should not preside over that matter. And yet the very first judge that the New York Commission on Judicial Conduct removed from office um, back in the 1970s was for presiding over cases involving 
the judge's brother. Wow. Six times the wow. judge's brother appeared. It was a relatively common last name. And finally, someone realized and reported it to the commission. And we sure. investigated and determined that it was accurate. And it was clearly removable. Now, there might be other situations where uh, it's not so um, obvious. You're presiding over a case, for example, involving a bank's foreclosure of a cooperative apartment or on a house. And the bank, let's say it's it's Chase Bank, mm-hmm. and you hold shares in J.P. Morgan Chase. Should you disqualify or should you not? Now, there used to be a bright line rule that if you have any financial interest in even to the slightest degree in any matter appear on your calendar, you must disqualify. Mm -hmm. But clearly the value of your shares are not going to be affected by what goes on in a co-op foreclosure or (laughs) a house foreclosure or a condo foreclosure. So do you really need to disqualify yourself? So the rules in New York were amended essentially to require disqualification if there is a substantial or a material interest that the judge or a member of the judge's household has in the matter before them. But because it's not necessarily always clear, it's one reason why we established in New York an advisory committee on judicial ethics mm-hmm. to give to give advice right. to a judge who can say, here are the facts, Should must I disqualify? There are a lot of other situations on either end of the spectrum. And the closer sure. you get to the middle, the more difficult it is for us to say that this conduct was sanctionable or disciplinable behavior. And so we try in every case to determine all of the factors that went into the judge's conduct and decision-making and behavior, give the judge an opportunity to expound on it, consult the advisory opinions to see if there is any legitimate way that the judge's conduct could be excused, and particularly if the judge was relying on advice reasonably interpreted in an advisory opinion, we'll give the judge the benefit of the doubt, even if we happen to disagree with the advice that's being provided in the advisory committee right, uh, right. opinion, which is why the entities are separate. In some states, the Judicial Conduct Commission issues the advisory opinion. In New York, we divided that function up so that you know the judges would not feel, for example, that they were going to the sheriff right. to ask permission to violate right. the law. Right, right, right. <laughs> they go to the advisory committee and get a and get an independent assessment of the facts as they present them. Right. And then take their chances that if they follow that advice, it's not going to be uh, disciplinable. And in fact, we have never ever disciplined the judge who in good faith, presented facts to the advisory committee and followed the advice that they gave, even where we disagree with the Hmm. advice. We do this sort of multi-level analysis in all of the uh, cases that we get to to try to see the nuance and not unfairly uh, apply a rigid standard of behavior against the judge. Right. What's really, what I hear you saying also is there's a difference between conduct that may not be the paragon of what a judge ought to do and sanctionable conduct. Right. And recognizing that those are two different things that are going to coexist is just fine and actually makes some, makes some sense. That's absolutely right. In fact, the preamble to the Code of Judicial Conduct actually says 
paraphrasing you, Jonah, that these are rules of reason and not every violation is intended to result in discipline. We have to provide context for everything that happens. So, for example, there are various rules in the code that require a judge to respect and comply with the law, to be faithful to the law, to be professionally competent in the law. Well, it's against the law to jaywalk. But if a judge jaywalks, it's not going to result in discipline. Right. It's These are rules of reason. We don't apply every violation against the judge with a sledgehammer. If somebody makes a complaint to us and it seems as if the behavior does not rise to the level of anything that could rightly undermine public confidence in the integrity and the ability of, of that person to be a judge, it's not going to result in discipline. On the other hand, to get close, close to uh, the same neighborhood as, as the jaywalking, if you for example, are issued a parking placard that identifies the car as being driven by a judge. So you put it on your dashboard so you can park in the courthouse parking Mm -hmm. lot. If you use that placard at a parking meter outside the restaurant at which you're having dinner so that you won't get a ticket, now it's not going to result in your removal from office, but it is going to get you at least cautioned. And if you, you know, do it repeatedly, it will get you publicly reprimanded because that's an abuse of the procedure of office. Mm-hmm. It's not a capital offense. You're not going to be removed for it, but it is something that you shouldn't do. And I use that example because there is not a year that goes by that we don't receive, usually anonymously, from someone who used a cell phone camera to take a picture of a judge's Mm -hmm. car, not by a courthouse on a weekend, so it's not office hours, it's not the working day, at an expired meter in a either in the neighborhood of their home or at some place where they've gone out for a visit. In this world of of ubiquitous surveillance, judges should know that Although we're not out there, everybody with a cell phone is now a potential complainant. And I'm not kidding. We get several complaints every year accompanied by cell phone photographs. And what's the big deal? Pay for parking. Right. Right. Judges get fairly decent salaries. Is it worth the aggravation of dealing with a letter from the commission that you saved yourself a buck or two by not feeding the parking meter or putting it in a garage near the restaurant you were going to dinner for. Right. And I guess, does that also extend one of the questions that that I know is out there is how judges should or shouldn't act on social media, right? Where they are putting information out there, any sort of recommended do's or don'ts on judges and social media? Yeah. Well, I don't have a Facebook page. I don't do social media. I don't have a Twitter account because when you're a public official, it seems to me, it can only get you into trouble. (laughs) Um, So we urge great caution for judges who use Facebook or Twitter or other, you know, social media accounts, Snapchat, or whatever it might be, because the rules of ethical behavior that constrain you on the bench or off the bench apply to social media. It's not the medium that is the problem, it's the message. So if, for example, a judge is prohibited from raising funds 
even for the best of charitable organizations, because the prestige of judicial office shouldn't be used to influence others to advance somebody else's interest. If you can't do it in person and you can't do it by letter, you can't do it by social media either. The rule applies no matter what the form the message might take. And we try to impress that upon judges. We recently had a case, for example, in which a judge accepted public reprimand for having appeared on his social media page in a police uniform. Now, the judge had, prior to judicial office, had been a long-term police officer. And there was a back the blue event and the judge put on his uniform and he mm-hmm. showed up at the parade and then sure. put pictures of himself in uniform on the website. The website, of course, identifies him as a judge and it undermines public confidence in any case that judge is going to get in terms of his impartiality where there are police officers involved because he's basically demonstrating his mm-hmm. affinity for one side of any criminal case that he's going to get. And and he recognized, I don't think at the time he put on the uniform and publicly displayed it, he realized that he was undermining public confidence in in his impartiality. But when the complaint was made to us and we reached out to the judge and asked for an explanation, he immediately got it, fell on the Mm -hmm. sword and recognized that it was improper. And the nature of the violation, particularly that it was so public on Facebook, resulted in his being publicly reprimanded uh, for it. So you have to be careful what you say on public media. Uh, judges are prohibited from discussing pending or impending matters in any court. Well, that means you can't do it on the radio. You mm-hmm. can't do it on television. You can't write an op-ed about you know a pending case. And you can't put your views on Facebook about it. To repeat myself, the message or the conduct is the issue, not the medium. And we tend to forget that social media is viewable, even in private settings, by people beyond the scope mm-hmm. of your audience. Even your, even someone to whom you limit access to your Facebook page can copy and repeat your message, like it, propagate it, disseminate it to Mm -hmm. others, and you've blown any privacy that you think you might have had. Nothing, nothing that we do on the internet, on social media, on our cell phones is private anymore. And judges have to really be mindful of that. Yeah. What's interesting to me is I think you're saying it as as a way of saying avoid doing it, right? It, the easier option is just to not have a Facebook page or not have a Twitter account. But also at the same time, that sort of guidance of assume that everybody's seeing it also could be freeing to someone who wants to participate on social media and say, if I want to talk about the Yankees on social media, I could talk about Yankees, the Yankees on the street. I can talk about it on my Twitter account. So maybe you're giving people actually some some guidelines that help as well. I don't know. Well, we try. And we and of course, I mean, I recognize that, that social media is a remarkable way to keep in touch with family and friends, mm-hmm. to locate people that you haven't seen in ages and that you're trying to reach and to engage in social, acceptable, desirable, fun, 
conversation and communication. Uh, so, right, there is absolutely no issue mm-hmm. in terms of a judge who, who wants to post a picture of the birthday party of her nephew or her right. grandson, uh, or who wants to talk about the Yankees you know, versus the Mets or the, the Nationals versus the Braves, whatever mm-hmm. the situation uh, might be. Just don't promote the judgeship while you're doing it right. and, and be mindful of the rules. The constraints on a judge off the bench apply not only in person, but through communication mm-hmm. devices. And if you're mindful of that, go right ahead and enjoy yourself. <laughs> what kind of jobs are do people have before they come to your office? And where, where do you hire? There is no particular path to coming to work at a place like the Commission on Judicial Conduct. Our lawyers come from the Ivy schools to the not from and the non-Ivy schools. They come from state schools. They come from New York schools. They come from schools from other uh, states. We've actually, on occasion, had people who had their legal educations in other countries and then were admitted to the bar in New York and came to work for us as attorneys. In terms of investigator positions, we typically hire uh, college graduates. You don't have to have a law enforcement or an investigative background. The one quality that I look for in a lawyer or an investigator or an administrative assistant is the ability to communicate clearly in writing. Everybody does memoranda, whether you are memorializing an interview, writing up a request for documents or procuring supplies, whatever it may be, there is a premium on the written word and on those who excel at writing. And my view has always been, if you write clearly and concisely, it probably means you think clearly and concisely. Mm -hmm. And that's as important as all the courses that you might have taken in law school. You can come in with a great command of the law, but if you can't communicate it in writing, the chances are you're going to be stumbling in oral communication, and that's going to um, set you back. So we look for good writers. Uh, One of our investigators who came to work for for us was in the hotel hospitality industry and wanted a career change. She turned out to be a terrific interviewer and ultimately left us to go to law school and is now uh, practicing law, clerked for a judge, and is, is now working as a deputy county attorney. We've had others who came right out of college, were English majors, film majors, and were looking for interesting work while they were figuring out what to do next. And they end up being here for several years. So if you write well, you'll catch my attention. That's great. Well, as a legal writing professor, you're making me very happy. So that's uh, honestly fantastic. It's not because it's what you teach, but it's because it's the most, I think it's the most significant skill that one can get Mm -hmm. uh, out of law school. There are any number of legal areas in which you you can know the law cold, but if you can't can't communicate it well, and by which I don't mean legalese, I mean communicate it in a way that that has a subject, a verb, and an object, (laughs) so that anybody, even a non-lawyer, can know where it is you're going and what it is you're saying. It's absolutely invaluable. And frankly, the most fun courses that I took in law school were legal writing and advocacy, because Mm -hmm. brief writing and oral arguing are skills that are applicable to any field in the law. 
Absolutely. And after more than 40 years of the work, do you think the public should be more or less confident in the quality of the judiciary than when you started out? Oh, I think far more confident. I've seen a tremendous growth in the New York State judiciary over the last 40 years. There is a much greater sensitivity to ethics in general and judicial ethics in particular. There are annual programs for all levels of the New York State judiciary in education and training, sort of CLE for judges on judicial Mm -hmm. ethics. Uh, They are much more sensitive to it. Now, maybe it's because there is a salutary effect in there being a disciplinary enforcement entity that is not afraid to exercise its jurisdiction. But I think also, as a society, we've become much more sensitive to the importance and the significance of ethical conduct, not just in the courts, not just among the judiciary, but throughout all levels of society. And frankly, I think one of the reasons why there was such consternation over the last four years, whichever side of the Trump divide you might have been on, I view the four years of the Trump presidency as a national debate on ethics, because we were literally examining everything that the presidency and the Congress was doing through an ethical lens, applying an analysis to national political behavior that the states have been doing vis-a-vis judicial conduct for decades. And I think to the ultimate benefit of our political discourse and the behavior of public officials, uh, they should know that there are consequences for ethical misbehavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Bob, this has been fantastic. I always like to end the interviews by asking for some advice. So for younger lawyers... (laughs) people just entering the profession. And I want to ask it to you in a slightly more specific way, which is advice to people who hear what you're saying and either haven't started their legal career yet or have started, but think, huh, this sounds really interesting. This sounds like it might be a fit for me. What advice would you give those people? I think there are any number of ways uh, in which someone can pursue a career in the law that is fulfilling Uh, challenging, makes the best use of your talent uh, and skill. It may be judicial discipline. It may be attorney ethics enforcement. It it may be commercial litigation. It may be criminal defense. It may be criminal prosecution. The law has so many avenues available for us to pursue that it should be close to impossible uh, (laughs) to be bored by being a lawyer. There's got to be some uh, avenue or path for you to find that lets you uh, fulfill the uh, the dreams and aspirations you have, and that lets you make a contribution uh, to society. To me, one of the most uh, rewarding aspects uh, of what I do Certainly, it's not the financial remuneration because, <laughs> because that's always going to be limited when you're doing public service. Absolutely. But there is never a day that my colleagues and I uh, in this field don't feel uh, as if we're not doing something that is important, that's significant, that's, that's fulfilling, and that's satisfying. Even when we're frustrated, it's frustrated in a good cause. So if you are pursuing a legal career, find the good cause, find what makes you excited. And even if it 
doesn't pay as much as uh, you'd, it will have enormous rewards for you because it will give you ways uh, in which you can blossom as a person as well as uh, a lawyer. Again, that was Bob Tempechian, New York State's Chief Judicial Ethics Enforcement Officer. I want to thank Bob again for joining the podcast and discussing this important area of legal practice. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider subscribing at howilawyer.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I can always be reached at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again to Bob. Thanks for listening and have a great week.